Good evening. Has anybody besides me been to church in Russia? Anybody? Okay. How many sermons did you hear on a Sunday? Yeah, well, you're going to get two tonight, too, so we really need to get going here. I got two for you tonight. Two for the price of one. What it is really is um, we're going through the book of first, well, we're not going through the book of First Samuel. We're going through the life of Samuel, which gives us leeway to skip some of the chapters. Ah, freedom. So we're looking at the life of um, Samuel, and we are up to a story that occurs in First Samuel 11. The story itself does not take a terribly long time to explain, but oh my gosh, is there a twist in it um, that I think will help demonstrate that the Bible is actually a true book and revelation of God because if somebody were just writing a book to make you like their religion, there is no way this stuff would have gotten in it at all. We are going to dive right in if we can, and I will begin reading First Samuel 11. If you happen to have a Bible that doesn't start the way I'm starting, talk to me about that after. There's a reason. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. That's a city in Israel. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel, and if nobody comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. Now what's going on here is that... Um, you remember, if you can think where Israel is, they're getting squeezed by the Philistines coming in from the west. Now they're getting squeezed by the Ammonites coming in from the east. And they are in trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. Nahash had a horrible reputation of mutilation, gouging out eyes. And his main reason for doing that in particular was it would render the men unable to be... Um, military, they were be unable to fight, but they would still be quite capable of farming. So this was his way of getting more and more vassals and land um, by gouging out eyes. He'd been doing it for months. And I wondered at first, you know, so why, why is he willing to give them seven days to see if they can get a response and get some help? And um, a couple different ideas. One is that um, he was absolutely confident that nobody was going to come help them, and you'll see, hear why in a minute. The other one could have been that he was thinking, well, yeah, bring it. Bring on anybody you can, because I can take all of you. And the more people I take in this battle, the more land I wind up with at the end. So he's going to give them seven days to raise an army to come rescue them. So the messengers went to Gibeah of Saul, Saul's hometown, and reported these terms to the people. They all wept aloud. And just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. Here comes the king, plowing with the oxen. And he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? And they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. Um, to catch it up, now, a couple weeks ago, we saw Saul out hunting for his father's donkeys. That's really kingly. Last week... Um, when they wanted to anoint him king, he was hiding in the baggage. 
and now he's coming in behind the oxen. He's back to plowing the fields. So what's going on with this king? Let me see, what's on the next slide here? Let's be surprised. I wanted to show you what's going on here. This is Israel. What's so funny about Israel? All right, so, okay, you've got, let me see if I can make this little thing work. Don't tell me it just died. Woo! Okay, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Land on the east, including Jabesh Gilead. Land on the west, including the tiny little tribe of Benjamin. And uh, Jabesh Gilead is making their appeal to the tiny little tribe of Benjamin. A couple weeks ago, Jesse called them thugs. And I get to tell you why tonight. This is, this is a story. Just a couple generations earlier than this, at the end of the book of Kings, um, which has as, not the book of Kings, the book of Judges, which has as its constant refrain, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, Israel at that point, 12 little loose confederacies, 12 little tribes, um, no central government, no unity, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. A couple generations prior to this story, a man from Ephraim was traveling back home from Jerusalem with his concubine, his mistress. And he stopped overnight in the city of Gibeah, Saul's hometown. During the night, the woman was gang-raped and died of her injuries. This is why I say, you, know, you, you can't make these stories up if you're just trying to appeal to somebody to join your religion. So why is this there? Um, the man of Ephraim is horrified. He takes the woman's body back home. And he calls on all Israel to gather to make war against the tribe of Benjamin because of this atrocity. No central government, no judicial system. So they're having a civil war in Israel at this point. And the 12 tribes gather against one of their own, against Benjamin. They go to war and they swear that they will never, ever give one of their daughters to a Benjamite man again. In marriage. They virtually wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. And after the success of the battle, they are very remorseful that they have almost wiped out the tribe. Because after all, this is one of the 12 tribes. But they made this vow never to give their daughters to a Benjamite man. So what to do? They realize that no one from the city of Jabesh Gilead had ever come to help in this war. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes back then. So the next step, Israel gathers together and tells the men of Benjamin to go to the city of Jabesh Gilead, kill the men, kill the older women, grab the virgins, and kidnap them and bring them home and repopulate. I couldn't make this story up. This is Judges 19 to 21. And that's what they did. So now, in the story we're looking at tonight, the people of Jabesh Gilead are appealing to that very tribe that had two or so generations earlier kidnapped their women to come help them. I think their thought is, hey, we're the grandparents, and you are our grandsons, now grown up and of military age. Come help us out. How bizarre is this? Israel needs a king because this kind of crap is going on. They're having civil wars against each other and giving each other permission to kidnap and to repopulate that way. So, that, so this is the background to the story. And here comes Saul back from the field, plowing with his oxen. What's going on? Let's see what happens next. 
um, they had explained to him what had happened. And when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He realized the injustice of what was going on at the hands of Nahash the Ammonite. He realized that the plot in the battle that Nahash was preparing for was to simply maim and disfigure and to take over the eastern lands of Israel. So he took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messenger throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. You see, there's a little detail I left out about that Ephraimite man whose concubine was virtually murdered by an attack in Benjamin. When the guy from Ephraim got home with her body, he cut it into 12 pieces and sent a piece to each of the tribes of Israel as a way of signifying to them how severe the atrocity had been that had occurred to her and that they needed to gather together to get some justice out of this situation. So when Saul cuts up a couple oxen and sends them out, they get the idea immediately about the severity of what's going on and how they need to respond. The spirit of the Lord fell on him in power, rushed on him. And this meek and mild man, who had been content to go out and watch donkeys, and hide in the baggage, and plow the fields, suddenly, suddenly comes into the kingship, comes into the spirit and power of the king that God had made him to be. And the terror of the Lord fell on the people. And I think what this is, is um, not so much like terrified of God, scared of God, but fear of God, reverence of God, and the sense of, holy crap, this is what we asked for. This is what Samuel warned us about, that if we wanted a king over us so that we could be a strong nation, he was going to call us to war. And here it is. It's time to pay the cost of what you asked for. You're getting what you prayed for. Are you ready for the answer? So Saul gathers them, and he takes them into battle. Let's see what goes next. Saul mustered them at Bezak. The men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. And they told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. And they said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do with us whatever you like. Flat out lie. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Go on. The people then said to Samuel, Samuel the priest, Samuel the prophet, Who is it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Last chapter, remember? But Saul, the meek and mild one, stands up to them and says, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Saul comes into the kingship. The calling had been given to him, revealed to him privately 
by Samuel in chapter 9. There was a public proclamation in chapter 10, once they found him from where he was hiding. And here there is a renewal of the kingship because that call has taken root in his heart now. He is a leader. He was able not just to go out and be a good soldier and to kick Ammonite butt, but he was able to recruit, organize, lead, strategize. Um, He had accomplished in seven days what had not been accomplished in hundreds of years under the judges. No one had been able to unite Israel. And Saul had a presence and a power of the Holy Spirit that was noticeable to the people. He had those valiant men that Adam talked about last week as a start, but he was able to bring unity finally to the nation of Israel. Went out, beat back the Ammonites, and prevented the atrocities they were threatening the city of Jabesh-Gilead with. And on the heels of his success, some people say, let's kill your enemies. Let's get this off at the right, let's get off the right foot, get rid of the enemies, we'll get going here. And Saul, rather than exercising the king's right to punish, exercises the king's right to extend grace, like our king Jesus Christ does. And he said, no one is going to be put to death today. It is the Lord who delivered Israel from the freedom they found from Egypt to the 40 years in the wilderness, entering the promised land, setting up the land and the tribes. Saul recognizes it is the Lord who delivers, and no one is going to die that day. So they go to the city of Gilgal, which is also quite symbolic. It's the city that Joshua and the Israelites first landed in when they crossed into the promised land. That's where they had a ceremony and a celebration to celebrate God's goodness. And so again, symbolic. Um, Samuel takes them to Gilgal. And in a religious ceremony, they renew not only the kingship, but their allegiance to the king that they had asked for. They offer fellowship offerings, and they have a great time of celebration, praise, and worship, thanking God for this one day at least. For this one day at least, all is right in Israel. They are following the king, and the king is following the Lord. Today, at least, everything is as it should be. And that's basically the story. That's the story of 1 Samuel 11. And what struck me most as I was reading through it was just the incredible change in Saul when the Spirit of God fell on him with power. Um, And this is where I segue, where I segue more into a topic than straight proof texting out of the text. But I want to talk to you tonight about what happens when power of the Spirit meets our willingness to obey. And I want to talk about vocation and passion. Now, don't panic that I'm talking about passion tonight. It's totally G-rated. But vocation... The word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which means to call. And originally, the meaning of it was a total response of the self to God, 
a response involving our leisure, relationships, work, our private lives, our public lives, and all the resources we steward, all at the disposal of God's purposes in the service of God and neighbor. So a calling from God is a call to service, an empowerment by God to serve others. And that can be in any way. It's a 24-7 holistic deal of giving ourselves to God for what he has called us to do, where we are called to serve, to be his witnesses and representatives. It's only in modern ages, if you've done any history or philosophy, 15, 1600s, only then did the word get narrowed down to mean your job. But your job is not your vocation. Your job is not your calling. It may be part of your calling, but your calling as a Christian is to be obedient to God, to live a godly life, a Christ-like life, and from there to figure out where he wants you to serve as an example and a witness to Christ. So vocation is way more than job. And there's a similar surprise in the word passion. Um, it comes from another Latin root word, pate, pati, that we also get patience and suffering from. That's why we talk about the passion of the Christ. Now, if you think of it, it's kind of an odd way of describing what happened to Christ. And tonight, I don't want to emphasize the suffering part, but I do want to emphasize the patient part. Because our modern definition of passion is the flash in the pan, right? The instant gratification, the high emotion, you know, the impulsiveness, the have it now. That's passion today. But that's a 180 from what the word means. Passion is patient endurance. And if we are to work out our calling with passion, we are going to work it out with patience and endurance. It ties into Saul's life because, you know, like we saw today, Saul, after being crowned king, went back to the family farm. There was no great wealth. There was no palace. There was no great accolades and crowns. His calling to be king didn't necessarily pay his bills. He still had to go back and farm. And he was not immediately accepted as king by everyone as soon as the proclamation was made. His calling was not recognized and honored and respected by all. And in his calling, he was offered the opportunity as king to get rid of his enemies once and for all right at the start. And he turned down that right and continued in patience, building the support and rapport he would needed with the people to be a king. I think this is where we go wrong so often. We think that our calling is going to be equal to what the world is willing to pay us for. And it's just not that way. Happy are some who manage to get paid as they work out their calling by God to serve, to use those gifts and talents he's given us. But that's not a privilege that we can absolutely expect. We can expect from scripture that we are called, we are gifted, we are given a sense by God of a responsibility and an ability to serve. But there's no guarantee the world is going to pay you for that. 
And you may have to work darn hard at your day job in order to have the resources to pay the bills, to take care of the family that you have to take care of, and then the time to do what God has given you the passion for on top of that. Every Christian called to obedience, to Christ-like character, to service. The reward may not be monetary. The reward is just as Jesse said two weeks ago, that you get to star in your own life. No one can take your place in the kingdom of God with what he has gifted you with, with the personality he has given you, with the background that you bring to the kingdom and your willingness. No one can replace you. You get to star in your own life. You might not get paid for it. You might still need a day job. Um, another basic point about calling also, and I think this is a um, particular importance, and it's not in my notes. I'm just winging it at this point because it came to me. A lot of times we have a sense of what obedience to God would look like, what a godly character and response would be, and we just don't want to do it. But we think, I'll just do it in a few years. Just give me my free time now, God. Give me a few years. I'm young. I have energy. I don't have a lot of responsibilities. Let me just live my life my way. And I promise in the future, I will flip a switch and be spiritually mature. Well, problem. You can't flip the switch to become spiritually mature. And every day that we are not being formed by the Spirit, we are being deformed by the powers in this world that suck us into ungodly ways of living and acting. So just to put that, to put that thought in your mind, put that kick on your butt, you can't just flip a switch someday and leave your past behind. Whatever you're doing today will be in your life tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying, not saying, absolutely not saying that you cannot be redeemed from anything you've built up in your past. But why would you look your future in the eye and say, I'll get to the godly part later? Follow today. Follow today. And if you're not going to get, you know, with your vocation, I think this is where we have to put our self-worth in that we are uniquely called and gifted by God to do something significant for him in service to this world. Um, it may pay the bills. It may not. This morning, um, there was a fellow who came up to me after the morning service, and I wish he could be here tonight. I'm going to give you like three sentences of his story and then have someone else give you their story about um, working out calling with passion and patient endurance. Um, the fellow I want to tell you about who couldn't come tonight is a guy named David Rapp. Some of you know him. Late 30s, early 40s, I don't know, a couple kids. Works a day job, works in an office. His passion is cycling. Not so much for racing's sake, but for health, for a green and healthy environment. And for about a decade now, David's been involved with all sorts of organizations, Bike Denver, 
Bicycle Colorado, what's the one I wrote down? The Mayor's Bicycle Advocacy Committee. And 10 years, the kind of results that he's had is seeing that um, a decade ago, maybe 1,500 people a day biked to work in Denver, and now over 10,000 do. That's a significant change. Big things, big projects like the bridge over 15th Street, is it 15th or 20th downtown? Um, and then another bridge that is about to be, co be constructed over I-25 at Colorado Boulevard. Okay, David's been really instrumental in the nitty-gritty networking, meeting, dull board meetings, meet another politician, do it again, up, oh, new governor, start over. He's been involved for over a decade to see those kind of results. All that time, working with patient endurance on his calling, not in self-service, but in service to the city of Denver, keeping his day job. Um, Dave couldn't be here tonight. I thought it was a great story worth sharing. But there's another fellow who is here and is willing to share with us something about the difference between um, working out your calling with patient endurance when it doesn't necessarily all come together the first day. And that would be Matthew Jorgensen. Stop it, you guys. Um, good evening. I, well, Fran came up to me this morning while we were cooking breakfast and um, asked if I could just share a little bit about kind of my process with this. I think it was about eight or nine years ago, I was studying interior design at community college and kind of... Um, just vacillating widely about like what I wanted to do with my life because I was pretty sure I wanted to drop out of school and I didn't know what to do. Um, but I was taking some ceramics classes and I received a, a letter from a friend named Sarah who used to go to SCUM and she had found an article on this Japanese potter and uh, wrote me some encouraging note about how, how this work reminds me of you and I don't know what else, but it was encouraging. I don't, I don't recall the content of the letter fully, but um, kind of set my wheels going and then a few, well, I was driving to work, I think the next morning and sort of had this epiphany and I was like, I think I have to become a potter. And um, and all of a sudden, that seemed like the best option for my life. Like, I want to spend my time getting really good at this craft and um, making beautiful objects with my hands and then selling them, um, which is a pretty odd um, kind of thing to call your, your calling. It's a little archaic, but um, I was serious about it, and it stuck. And so it... Um, turned into this process of like, okay, so I got to go to art school. So I kind of reluctantly peeled myself away from the scum community. Um, then, I mean, that was maybe like seven years ago and went and got a, a bachelor of fine arts degree in ceramics and then ended up going to Minnesota for a couple years and doing an artist residency program up there. And um, so I got homesick after that and ended up coming back here. 
But all the while, I was pursuing this work and um, honing my skills and and my aesthetic sensibilities. And and it's been really awesome. Um, it's not. It hasn't been easy because I've just been like dirt broke, and I have this super expensive fine arts degree, which is not useful. Um, but I've kind of it's become sort of like a love, a beloved fact of my life that my life isn't about usefulness or utility. It's, I, I guess I'm more called to create beauty. So, so no, I don't have mar marketable job skills or, um, or savings. And I've been, <laughs> uh, I've been, you know, working schmo jobs for, for a long time, construction and tile working and retail and Starbucks um, but actually, uh, my last day at Starbucks was Thursday. Um, <laughs> praise him. Uh, so I'm not flinging mochas for the masses anymore, but, um, it's kind of felt like the last few months, there's been a lot of arrows from here and there pointing to like, okay, it's time to leap into the abyss and try to, um, make this thing work full time. So, um, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm like, this is going to be my first week away from, from the crutch of a part-time job. And, um, I think one thing, especially that maybe it was in Leonor's sermon a couple weeks ago, she talked about not, not relying on human structures. And I was, um, struck by that and and it was things like that that I kept hearing for months about like don't be afraid of being poor and don't be afraid of um you know failing and and whatever um so it might not work and I could be hungry and begging in a month um and the you know I could have to get a part-time job again in the future though I hope pray that that won't happen but um I don't know, I'm really excited to let my life be really precarious for a while and and do the work that I love and that is meaningful to me. Um, I think that's all I got for right now. Thank you. Those are um, just a couple great stories, David's, Matthew's. Um, I know there are others here, too, who have already grasped what God is calling you to and have already grasped that you just don't walk into it the next day. Um, passion is patient endurance for your vocation, your calling from God. Um, this is this is such a great, great community, and we support one another. We know Matthew will never go hungry. We know that. Um, we also know that if he gets down and depressed, we'll be behind him, picking him up again and getting him going. So I wanted to mention a few things that I've realized keep people from diving in and following their calling. Because, not to be a downer, but because I know this community will support each other if they see any of these features in another person. I think the first one is our culture 
has us so addicted to options. Ever since you were a little kid, you were told you can be anything you want to be when you grow up, which probably isn't true. If you're like me, you're never going to make it to the MBA. And whether or not 2 plus 2 always equals 4, I'm, I'm really not sure. Sometimes when I add, it doesn't. There's plenty of things I can't be. Um, and the relentless pursuit of the perfect fit and painless happiness keeps us from settling in to the hard, tough work that is before us to bring our calling to fruition. So constantly lateraling from one job to the next because someone looked at me funny or I can get 10 cents more over there, this is three. Think of the character that God can build into you in those difficulties. Think through carefully what God might be cultivating and growing in you before you just jump from option to option to option. I mean, you do need to change jobs at times. You do need to move closer and closer to that passion. But let's hold us, let's uh, be honest with one another about whether we are running toward or running from. And let's encourage one another and stick with one another when the times get rough. Sometimes we're just, we're just afraid. We're just afraid of that journey afraid of the sacrifices, you know, afraid to have that debt, afraid to have, you know, that, that hunger, literally, or that crappy apartment because we're busy pursuing the calling. And uh, in those cases, I would say, take the initiative. Take the initiative to find someone a step or two beyond you, maybe a year or two older, maybe not even older. Find someone who will encourage you, support you, find a mentor to help you get the pace down of what you need to do to achieve that calling. Use the community, but take the initiative. Don't just sit there waiting for someone to come to you to figure out why you've got a mopey look on your face. Take the initiative. This community loves you. Find the people in it who will come alongside of you and stick with you. Sometimes we, uh, we don't pursue that calling because we have a sense that success is going to bring responsibility. I'm going to have to grow up and keep a regular schedule and pay taxes and, and figure out debt. And uh, what, if, what if I'm actually responsible for other people? The pr I mean, the pressure can seem really strong and... Uh, we're afraid of success. And again, I'd say, let this community, let's get around each other and support one another um, to overcome that fear. Some of us, we're just burned out. We tried. Some of us tried and things were great. And then the rug got pulled out from under us. Something went dreadfully wrong. And we just can't figure out why God let it all go south. And so we're scared again. And some of us have been trying, 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 rejection, rejection, down again, down again, and not getting anywhere, and we're just tired. But that calling that God gives you, only you can fulfill. And brothers and sisters, we have to come around each other, lift each other up, support one another to get back on our feet and keep going, pursue 
the passion, the patient endurance toward the vocation, the calling God has given us. And uh, sometimes our dreams are just too small. Did you ever, did you ever get like really bored doing something menial? Yeah. And, you, and then somebody gives you something bigger to do, and it's like, okay, now, now I'm interested. You know, wash the floor, I'm not too interested. Redesign the walls, now you got my attention. And uh, I think sometimes the fear that we carry within us keeps our dreams too small. We haven't even, we've only seen a glimmer of what God really has in store for us. And we need to call each other out, call out from each other the gifts and the talents that are latent within. And this one's for Mike. It's a C.S. Lewis quote. We haven't had a C.S. Lewis quote in months since Mike went on sabbatical. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Um, just think, C.S. Lewis wrote that in 1949, so he was writing to your grandparents about that stuff. Can you imagine? Um, but that happens sometimes. We are, we are creatures with an amazing ability to rationalize, and sometimes we are content to diminish our own calling, and we do it so eloquently and well. And we really need each other to look at each other and say, seriously? No, no, that's not what you were made for. You were made for far more than that. Um, there's one more quote, I think, one more slide. Yes, um, that sums all this up. His name is pronounced Beekner. I never would have guessed that. Thank you, Ben Mercer. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Your vocation is the place where your passion and the world's hunger meets. God has called every one of us to a life of obedience, godliness, Christ-like character, and he has individually called each one of us to something very unique and without staying close to him in prayer and in worship and in study and in communion with the body of Christ around you, we will not be able to find the calling or we will be scared very much <laughs> to follow that calling. We need each other, but mostly we need the Lord. We're going to go into a time now where we have communion together, similar to the celebration that um, Saul and or Samuel organized after Saul's victory. Um, my prayer tonight is for all of us to feel the Spirit of God fall on us with power, and that this community, as we receive communion together, anyone who loves Jesus um, is welcome to come and tear off a bit of the bread or a piece of the cracker, dip it in the cup of juice that symbolizes the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. During communion, there's going to be folks down in the prayer cave over there under the exit sign. If you want to pray with somebody about your vocation, um, bring it to fruition, fears that you might have at it, we're going to have people down there to pray. Um, yeah. 
Let's pray right now to bring us into the mood for both prayer and communion. Father, we worship you. And we are grateful for this time that we can worship through song, through an appreciation of your word, through sharing in this highly symbolic act of the Eucharist. As you ordained it, Lord, to remind us of your body and your blood, broken and shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins and for the wholeness and redemption of our beings. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for making it clear that we are loved by you, gifted by you. Give us courage now. and Thank you for the support of this community. Amen.